earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today is part 12 in our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. And if you missed any parts, the program podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Our title today is Shooting Some Hoops and brings us to Acts chapter 15, where this time we observe a rather unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power and watch it surface during a critical time of decision-making for the early church. But before we get started... I'd like to share with you a unique practice that occurred in the deserts of Arabia, where a guide never lost his way. You see, this guide always had a homing pigeon with him, whose one leg was tied to a long, fine, but strong cord. Whenever he was in doubt about what path he should take, he simply released the pigeon, and it would strain at the cord to fly in the direction of home. This unique practice earned him quite a reputation, and throughout the region he gained the nickname the Dove Man. Hmm, the Dove Man. I wonder what the spiritual parallel might be for us Christ followers. Friends, have you ever thought of yourself as a Dove Man or a Dove Woman? Perhaps it's time we start thinking and acting like Dove Men and Dove Women. After all, isn't one of the most familiar manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament a dove? You recall the account, right? It's in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus was water baptized by John the Baptist. And here's the key verse, verse 16. The heavens were opened and John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, Jesus. The very next verse, Matthew 4, 1, says, Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. The point here being that the Holy Spirit, our heavenly dove, if you will, is not only willing, but able to direct our paths as we, in self-denial, humbly submit to his unerring supervision. Well, friends, in Acts 15, it becomes apparent that an issue had been simmering ever since Ananias had been told that Saul was God's chosen instrument to carry the good news to the Gentiles. Recall chapter 9, verse 15. Shortly after that revelation, Peter's vision of unclean animals hammered the point home even further. Recall chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. Well, it's becoming abundantly clear that the proclamation of the gospel was no longer to be limited to a particular chosen people. For a while it seemed okay for Peter and Paul to preach to the Gentiles, but a dispute arose when the gatekeepers, a.k.a. the truth squad, 
came from Jerusalem to demand that Gentile converts be circumcised if they were going to be considered saved. Now, friends, you know as well as I do, every church has its own truth squad, right? They're like a bad spaghetti dinner. They keep bringing things up. You know, they're the ones with the mental spiral notebooks, always scrutinizing everyone else, making sure people are living up to their supposed standards, their list of do's and don'ts. After all, their list outlines the true Christian life. But their true colors always come out when you hear them say, well, Christians don't do that, or Christians don't dress like that, even Christians don't go to those places. Well, these first century quote-unquote Judaizers got more than they bargained for. Paul and Barnabas argued strongly against forcing circumcision on the Gentiles. The ensuing deliberations actually bear a close resemblance to an early evangelical Quaker model. The early evangelical Quakers, who became known as Friends, made an incredible contribution to the body of Christ with reference to the decision-making process, which I highly respect. In fact, it was these early friends who desired to bring back some first-century church practices, including the decision-making process. And what's particularly interesting in Acts 15 is that Paul and Barnabas could have used their apostolic muscle as spiritual fathers of the church in Antioch and demand that the Judaizers just be corrected and sent on their way. Friends, let's listen in on some of the proceedings. Paul and Barnabas called the assembly in Antioch together to report all God had done through them, welcoming outsiders, or Gentiles, through the doorway of faith. They stayed in Antioch with the disciples for quite a while. Their peace was disturbed, however, when certain Judeans came with this teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the Mosaic custom, you cannot be saved. The church selected several people, including Paul and Barnabas, to travel to Jerusalem to dialogue about this issue with the apostles and elders there. On their way, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria and reported to the believers there that outsiders were now being converted. Upon arrival in Jerusalem, the church, the apostles, and the elders welcomed them warmly, and they reported all they had seen God do. But there were some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees. They stood up and asserted, No, this is not acceptable. These people must be circumcised, and we must require them to keep the whole Mosaic law. The apostles and elders met privately to discuss how this issue should be resolved. There was a lot of debate, and Peter finally stood up and said in part, my brothers, you all know that in the early days of our movement, God decided that I should be the one through whom the first outsiders would hear the good news and become believers. God knows the human heart, and he showed approval of their hearts by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did for us. God made no distinction between them and us. So it makes no sense to me that some of you are testing God by burdening his disciples with a load that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to carry. No, we all believe that we will be liberated through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They also will be rescued in the same way. 
There was silence among them while Barnabas and Paul reported all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among outsiders. Notice, friends, how the dispute was referred to the quote-unquote yearly meeting, so to speak, of that day, the Jerusalem Council, to be handled by people of maturity and wisdom, people who discern the Spirit's leading. Also note that Paul and Barnabas could have turned this Jerusalem called session into a major verbal battle, but instead of doing that, they spoke with humility and sincerity. They emphasized the work God had been doing through them, not arguing for the soundness of their position. Interestingly, the Greek philosopher Plutarch said, There is no stronger test of a person's character than power and authority. Well, the clerk of the Jerusalem meeting was evidently in no hurry to force a decision. An extended discussion time was allowed. Verse 13 and the following verses stand out to me. When Paul and Barnabas had finished, James spoke. My brothers, hear me. Simon Peter reminded us how God first included outsiders in his favor, taking people from among them for his name. This resonates with the words of the prophets. Then James quotes Amos 9 about all nations seeking the one eternal God. James continued, So here is my counsel. We should not burden these outsiders who are turning to God. We should instead write a letter instructing them to abstain from four things. First, things associated with idol worship. Second, sexual immorality. Third, food killed by strangling. And fourth, blood. My reason for these exceptions is that in every city there are Jewish communities where for generations the laws of Moses have been proclaimed, and on every Sabbath Moses is read in synagogues everywhere. Now listen, friends, to what follows. This seemed like a good idea to the apostles, the elders, and the entire assembly. They commissioned men from among them and sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, including two prominent men, to deliver this letter. Friends, in my opinion, the key line in this letter is in verse 28. It had seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to keep you free from all burdens except these four. Then it mentions the four things above. Notice, friends, that there was unhurried debate and ample time for prayer and waiting. James, acting as the clerk of the meeting, didn't allow the meeting to end in a muddle of indecision and procrastination. A decision was finally made. Notice also that even the implementation of their decision was handled carefully and sensitively. They drafted a written statement to alleviate future questions about its interpretation. I also appreciate the fact that they sent a pair of trusted church leaders to validate their written statement to the believers in Antioch to preserve the unity and strength of the church. And so, friends, a happy ending was enjoyed by all. The Gentiles responded enthusiastically. After all, they had been heard and treated with respect. They could now move ahead to spread the gospel among other Gentiles without getting fettered by certain Jewish-based rituals. The dispute was settled peacefully, resulting in a stronger bond of fellowship and unity than existed before the dispute arose. 
Now, friends, I owe a debt of gratitude to Mr. Lon Fendel in his 1986 article for this characterization of the Jerusalem Council meeting. I adapted and edited some of it for this program. I'd also like to share some insightful observations made by Jack Wilcutts in his 1982 book, Why Friends Are Friends. First, in major decisions, notice a congregational form of government was implemented. Second, the apostles and elders acted as advisors and guides for their leadership roles, but did not function as bishops or with authoritative control. Yet, weighty members like Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and others at the council meeting were certainly influential. Third, notice that no voting was mentioned. Action involved a divine human combination that included the confirming witness of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, notice that the Holy Spirit unveils his will to a communal assembly as well as to individuals within it. Fifth, their final decisions were corroborated with or validated by the scriptures, their Old Testament. Sixth, a minute or written report of the action was prepared by the presiding officer and was read for approval. And seventh, the decision was communicated in writing to other Christian assemblies affected by the Jerusalem Council's resolution. Now, friends, I realize it's hard for us some 2,000 years later to grasp what the big deal was here and why this crucial meeting had to take place. Just suppose for a moment that this meeting didn't take place. Imagine the Holy Spirit didn't prod the early apostles and Messiah followers to think outside the religious box, if you will. There'd be no church. It's likely we'd not be meeting as Gentile congregations in our own respective facilities. It's likely just as the early Jewish Christians became known as the sect of the Nazarenes, that we too'd be called Nazarenes, literally. Christianity would go no further than remaining a sect within Judaism. We Gentiles who received Yeshua, Jesus, as our Savior, would be accepted in the same way first century proselytes were accepted into the Jewish community, by becoming Jews first. And the primary outward sign of our conversion would be for men to be circumcised, and then we'd all be required to observe the law of Moses. The notion of salvation through Messiah would simply become an add-on to the already established Jewish religious rituals and practices. Who knows, each of our local churches might be meeting in the local synagogue in our town or city, and we'd become known as the sect of the Nazarenes there. Just curious, friends, do you know where the local synagogue is in your town or city? Like we saw for Paul, is our heart's desire and our prayer to God for them, their salvation, according to Romans 10.1. After all, salvation was the issue at stake in Acts 15, wasn't it? Recall Acts 15.1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And it's interesting that the actual letter dispensed opened with this statement. Greetings. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. 
And then it goes on with, Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And the four things were said earlier are listed. It certainly appears, friends, that this band of Jewish believers were making every effort to protect their turf. After all, these were converted Pharisees, per 15.5. And curiously, the word power that we've been tracing along our journey through Acts is concealed in chapter 15.1. The phrase, you cannot be saved, is actually, you are not able to be saved. And this word able is our Greek word, power. In a sense, these Pharisaic converts were advocating that unless you adhere to the law of Moses, you will be powerless to be saved. Are you connecting the dots here, friends? The bottom line is that these Pharisaic converts were claiming that the only power that can bring salvation is the Mosaic law, which is ultimately encapsulated in the rite of circumcision. This truth is reiterated in 15.5 when they repeated, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. A stronger translation says, It is necessary to circumcise them. And it's also interesting to note that the word sect here is where we get our English word heresy. So you see, when Messiah Jesus finally came and fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic law, clinging to the Pharisaic brand of Judaism now becomes heresy. The challenge to this brand of Judaism comes out in verses 7 through 9, when Peter stands up and addresses those present at the meeting. The key here is that Peter has already concluded from his prior experience at Cornelius' house that God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter then counters the Pharisaic believers by telling them they've put on the necks of the Gentile converts a yoke that no one has been able to bear, and concludes, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. James, quoting Amos 9, brings Old Testament validation to what happened at Cornelius' house and to other Gentile converts. Amos' prophecy anticipated Gentiles becoming a part of God's people when the house of David is restored. The coming of Messiah Jesus marked the restoration of David's fallen tent, the wording used in Acts 15:16. Jesus' first coming as the Davidic Messiah signaled God's reign being extended to cover the Gentile ingathering. Gentiles are now invited to be part of God's covenant community and not by first becoming Jews. In other words, jumping through the hoops of ceremonial Judaism. These hoops needed to be shot down. Amos's prophecy made it clear that Israel was no longer to be the exclusive people of God. Believing Gentiles had to now be added. 
Think about it, friends, how hard this bitter pill was to swallow for the proud Jews. And this is the value of James's contribution to the Jerusalem Council's discussion. James's strategy was to shift the discussion of the Gentile converts from a proselyte model to an eschatological model. Now, don't be tripped up by these two big words. If the proselyte model was finally followed, the Gentile believers would be confined to a sect within Judaism and, by default, consign all Christians to that sect as well. A proselyte is simply a Gentile convert to Judaism. The eschatological model, however, and eschatology simply means relating to the end times or God's future program, meant that those gathered recognized God was uniting two groups into one new body, and this would now become a distinctively new group, the church. Paul nails this idea in Ephesians chapter 2, which I recommend you read in its entirety, and from which I'll quote a small portion, verses 14 through 18. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now, friends, before we close out our session today, I just want to point out that the Jerusalem Council's final decision included their recommendation of four things for the Gentile believers recorded in Acts fifteen twenty-eight and 29, which I mentioned earlier. I just want to make it clear that these recommendations were not a concession to the Pharisaic believers to pacify them. Rather, it was an attempt to harmonize relations between two vastly different cultural groups, particularly when it came to eating food. Let's remember that the Gentile converts were former pagans steeped in idolatrous practices. So the recommendation was they abstain from behavior offending the Jewish believers. Friends, what we witness in Acts 15 is the Holy Spirit's power being uniquely exercised and manifested in the transforming and refining process of uniting Jews and Gentiles into one body of Christ. Additionally, we observe the challenges and the resistance to this process and the deliberation it took to finally hammer out what the Holy Spirit was nudging the assembly to conclude and then put into practice. Take a moment, friends, and think about the local church you may be attending. How are decisions made there? Is the pastor a one-man show, wielding his power and insisting on his way? Is there a church board that makes all the decisions? Does your church even have a periodic body meeting where all members can express their opinions or views? Compare your church's decision-making process to the one that occurs in Acts 15. I would even like to suggest that, in your case, Acts 15 might need to be taken off the shelf and implemented anew, become a new reality. 
Maybe Jesus' words to the seven churches in Revelation need to be revived and heeded once again. Right here, right now. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see we're nearing the end of our program. (sighs) Today's broadcast will be closing with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings and what this program means or has meant to you. A listener recently wrote in, referring to Part 9 in this series, Is There Really Only One Way? With this comment, Always a great message. We are all so in need of shepherding. Maybe we learn from Jesus to reach out to those in need who we may be able to shepherd. Well, thank you for those encouraging feedback words and sharing how that installment impacted you. And remember, friends, all podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Additionally, the podcasts of A Word from the Word are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please feel free to share the podcast with family or friends who may be touched, blessed, or even challenged by these teachings. And friends, A Word from the Word is now being rebroadcast weekly on ChristianBody.net. Just check ChristianBody.net for program schedule. And please keep in mind that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. So if it blesses you or edifies you, please join our team of supporters. People like you help keep this program on the air. Just ask me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, Email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.